2: W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for listening. Huh.
0: Yeah. What is it good for? Absolutely.
2: The 9-11 Anniversary Observance, a recent exit after 20 years of fighting in Afghanistan. Today we're exploring the impact of war on screen and on stage. Has anything really changed since the Trojan War? That question is at the heart of Theatrical Outfit's new production, *An Iliad, the classic tragedy of Homer reimagined by creators Lisa Peterson and Dennis O'Hare. Theatrical Outfit Artistic Director Matt Torney is directing the show. He joins us now via Zoom with actor Leo Sorio, who portrays the poet. Welcome back to City Lights.
3: Thank you so much, Lois. It's wonderful to be here. It's always a pleasure to speak with you.
2: Matt, and Iliad is the first in-person production at the Balzer Theatre since the pandemic hit. Why did you want to return to the
3: stage with this show? (laughs) Well, the times that we're living through, I think, can only be described as epic. Mm. So when we were looking at plays and, and imagining all the different possible seasons, Um, that we were going to return to the theatre with, we were looking for something that could capture the scale of the times we're living through. And particularly when everything is moving so fast and, and changing so fast, there seemed to be something rich in looking back to beginning stories, origin stories, the first stories, so that we could uh, look at them through fresh eyes and test ourselves against them. Um, And when we found this one, the Trojan Wars, two great (laughs) nations fighting with one another, the sense of chaos, the sense of intensity, it just all felt incredibly familiar. Um, and then when we got into the the nitty gritty of it, it, it even begins, uh, I think it's in the second chapter, with a plague. So it seemed, it seemed to be um, both timeless and very relevant.
2: The Iliad is considered the oldest work of literature in the Western canon. It's been around for over 2,500 years. What new insights does this adaptation provide?
3: The reason that the Iliad is still read, I believe, is that it touches on some deeply human and eternal things, Uh, love of home, desire for glory, the nature of war and the way that it cycles through our history. But the genesis of this particular adaptation uh, came in the early 2000s when Lisa and Dennis wanted to make a piece that would respond to the wars in Iraq and then in Afghanistan and really look at what it meant to be in an America that was at war. So their vision of Homer is as this kind of castaway of time who has been alive for thousands of years and present at all of the different wars that have happened. And he wanders the earth, telling the story of the Trojan Wars in the hope that people will finally get it. The thing that he wants people to get is that if human beings continue to be addicted to rage, these cycles will keep repeating. And unless we can find peace and grace, that's what we have to look forward to. And there's a kind of sad irony that we're presenting this play just weeks after the end of that war in Afghanistan. And and everyone's asking questions like, what did it mean? What was it for? Was it worth it? I wondered
2: if... Afghanistan, was on your mind in rehearsing this play?
0: It absolutely was for me. Reading the headlines and reading the stories of people trapped there, I think for all of us it's been heartbreaking. <laughs> I didn't really know the Iliad much. I somehow managed to escape it in, in high school. I don't know how I did that, but coming to this play and, and just reading in the first couple of scenes about the, the endless war... I just thought this story could have been written today about Afghanistan or about Syria or about Ethiopia or about so many places or Sudan that are, are just sort of in these interminable seeming wars. But to be honest, I came in. I'm, I'm so glad that Matt brought up Grace. I came into rehearsal one day and I was just like, I can't get all these lines in my head. My spirit is fighting this play. I don't want to tell a story about war. I don't want to tell a story about rage. I'm so sick of this country that we live in. That is, as Matt said, and as the play says, addicted to rage. Why do we need to do a play about rage right now? And I said, the only way that I can find my way into this play is if we reframe it and we say this isn't a play about being addicted to rage. It's actually a play about the possibility of grace. All of these characters presented time and time again with two paths. They can react, you know, with rage and frustration and violence, or they could choose grace and take the higher ground. We're humans. We don't take the higher ground very often. But like this play, I think what it points to for me, the reason I hope people come to see it is at the end of the day, it is a story of hope of what happens when we choose grace and how, if only for a moment, we can have this peace that we so desperately need as a nation right now. We certainly don't need more rage.
2: And you mentioned somehow escaping it during high school Many of us have not read the Iliad since high school. Is it important for theatergoers to reread or read Homer's Iliad to understand this performance, Matt?
3: Absolutely not. (laughs) The thing about these old stories is that they have been reinvented. Uh, over thousands of years by many different civilizations. So even if you've never read the Iliad, you probably have heard the name Achilles. You've probably heard of Troy. You've probably heard of Helen of Troy. You might have heard of Agamemnon or other Greek heroes. I'm sure you've heard of the horse. It is like the myths of it are bigger than the story itself. And really, that's all you need as a way in. The thing that's sticky about the play and about the story are the images that it contains and these sort of unforgettable characters. Uh, one thing that we keep saying in, in rehearsal is that some of the best bits of the play are actual straight translations from the Iliad, conversations between characters th- thousands of years old. One particularly notable one for me is uh, is Andromache, the wife of a Trojan hero, who's begging her husband not to go to war. And leave her a widower. And like it could be somebody speaking to their husband today. And that sense of timelessness and familiarity is something almost haunting about the play. But also that connection with the past I find um in a way really reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that that the things that were human thousands of years ago are the things that are human now, for better or for worse. But, In a time when when headlines are daunting and and the news is overwhelming, to take a larger view, uh, a deeper view uh, at what chaos means, at what grace is, and what it means to be human. Uh, I think that that's pointing to the things that are great about theatre, that theatre can offer us in times of crisis, but also it offers us an escape, an escape into myth and adventure, and also, as Lee so beautifully put it, an escape into the possibility of hope possibility of Christ,
2: which we certainly can use now lee would you tell us about your character the poet
0: yes he as matt has mentioned is this person who has been traveling around the world telling this story and one of my favorite lines is comes in the first five minutes of the play he says every time i tell the story i hope it will be the last he, he hopes that this message of, you know, make different decisions, choose grace, will be heard. I think he is a man who, who believes, or a person, because there have been women who perform this role as well, and non-binary people who perform this role as well, this is a person who believes deeply in the power of story to connect us and to show us who we are and who we could be you know, Matt mentioned headlines. So often we read headlines, whether it's, you know, 48 or now more than 50 people who, have, who were killed in Ida or the, you know, nearly a dozen who were killed, Americans who were killed in the Kabul attack at the airport. And we can just see them as that, as numbers. But I think one of the things that this play does so beautifully is reminds us that these are people with full lives, with families who love them, that they may never see again when they go into these wars. Or, you know, sometimes it can feel like our, our very life is a war. and We don't know if we're going to come home at the end of the day, certainly for first responders right now. That's a message that I think is, is really present, whether you're you know, a police officer or a doctor, uh, a nurse. And so how do we stop and say... <laughs> What are we doing? We're taking these people's lives. We're very literally taking these people's lives and we're watching the numbers of people who've died from COVID just rise and rise and rise, but they're not just numbers. They're not just numbers. They are people. And and I believe they're people worth saving. So how do we put aside our rage and the polemic nature of, of current day and actually come together to find some peace and to save lives. And I think that's really the goal of of the poet and the goal of the piece that Lisa and Dennis have created.
2: If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights speaking with theatrical outfit artistic director, Matt Torney and actor Leo Sorio. Some of the script includes classical Greek. I read
0: it does, which has <laughs> been uh, <laughs> uh, it's been fun. It's really beautiful. The play actually opens with just a little bit, and don't worry, audiences, uh, it's not a ton. It's very you know sparse, but it is it is just a beautiful the way that um, and I am totally going to butcher this, but Matt can help me out. It is in hexameter. Matt, help me out here.
3: Yeah, it's just the the rhyming scheme is hexameter, which is, (laughs) it's like sort of six couplets to a line or like six, six beats to a line, as opposed to Shakespeare, which people would be more familiar with, which is pentameter, which is five. And the way that it was written and the language that it was recorded in was designed to be sung, not to be read. So when you hear woven throughout this piece, these moments of sung Greek, I hope it just sort of. Bends time a little bit. <laughs> it's like a little trick of the mind, as you can imagine what it, what it might have been like to, to be there 2,500, 3,000 years ago.
2: What was it like to read and memorize the ancient Greek
0: league? I was very fortunate to have some great dramaturgical help with this. And that's right. It, it was meant to be sung, and you, and you feel that in, in the rhythm. So the first sort of phrase that is sort of repeated throughout is, Menenai de tea choi chaleos, U Polas dipti musayu keas and I probably butchered that for <laughs> anyone who is out there and actually speaks ancient Greek. But I've sort of fallen in, I mean, not enough to actually, you know, go back and, and learn ancient Greek. But, um, you know, these phrases, they there's something magical. And you sort of understand the birth of theater. If someone could come on and, and it's almost like an incantation, the way that the lines are written, the rhythm. I mean, it, it, it sweeps you into the story, even without understanding the language. So... Yeah, I I think it's really wise that uh, they included that in there.
2: Oh, it was gorgeous to hear you read it. I was swept up right now. What is modern day about this tale? The creators call it an Iliad. No pretense about this being the Iliad. So what modern or
3: contemporary references appear in the script? So I think... The big way in which Lisa and Dennis reinterpret the play is looking at the Trojan War as the first in a long line of wars, uh, many of which are very similar uh, and many of which are mentioned in the play. And by considering the Trojan War as like a protean war, the first of a series of dominoes to fall, it points to this idea that war is something that repeats and the circumstances for war that arise are things that repeat. That the things that we are living through today are things that people have lived through before, and that if you understand what you're living through as part of a cycle, rather than the Trojan War, it's like a war in a list of wars, rather than the moment that you're in, it is a moment. It just offers a different perspective and a different historical understanding. So the play contains these glimpses of ancient Greek. And then there's modern translations of passages of the Iliad. And then there's very contemporary language. And you just get the sense that the images in the play can be understood and seen with many different eyes. That when you're talking about warfare in the desert, it could be sandals or desert boots.
0: Nine years. Fighting off and on, fighting to the wall and back. Greeks were in one day, Trojans were in the next, like a game of tug of war, and nothing to show for it but exhaustion, poverty, and loneliness. What was it like? Ah, it was a pain. It was awful. It was. uh, It was. It was hot. How about that? It was hot. How can I? nine years. So for, so you left home when your baby is one, you come back and your baby is 10. You left home when your baby is one, you come back, your baby is dead. You come back, uh, your, your wife is dead. You come back, your wife is fat. You come back, your wife has had three affairs and two more kids. Uh, hi honey. Um, Don't get mad. Don't get mad, you know, or you come back and the farm is ruined or, there's been a war and you're no longer greek you're now diocletian or whatever it is you're spartan they came and took over your land while you were hanging out at troy and you have no title to your land anymore um your father died while you were gone you know or oh no we don't wear those leggings anymore we stopped wearing them like that a long time ago so you can imagine after nine years of this well they want to go home. They've forgotten why they're fighting.
3: The sense of time bends. And this is something that's reflected in, in the design as well. There's like there's little glimpses of things from different eras to put everything in sequence rather than a singular myth where all the truth lives. It's more like a trail of breadcrumbs um, towards some deeper truths and deeper understandings.
2: You mentioned the fact that poetry was sung, was meant to be sung in ancient Greek drama. Would you take us through the music that Deesha Oliver performs in this production?
3: Yes. First thing to say is that she's amazing and <laughs> it's going to be fantastic. And after having not been in a rehearsal room to rehearse a play in a, in a couple of years to have an extraordinary musician playing cello alongside your work in a very organic fashion is it's just brilliant. And uh, uh the past week or so working with Tisha and Lee on building the score live in the room There have been really special days that have opened up new understandings of the images and and the language. So the score is a collaboration between Daisha and a group called Multiband, who we've worked with a lot over the past year, uh, who are a collective of, of designers and engineers who bring a lot of different brains to the table. And they're looking at this story through some of the lenses that we've been talking about, An Iliad, a contemporary story with with ancient overtones. And they've been approaching the score as something that feels like now, or feels classical, or feels like a folk tale, and slowly moves back and forth in time to capture the emotional rhythms and the different images in the piece. So what you're going to see when you come to the theatre There is a moment at which uh, the muse arrives and begins to play. And uh, the stage direction is it's like the world of the play is suddenly flooded with colour. And from that point on, large sections of the play are underscored with completely original music that was composed in the room to fit exactly with what Lee was doing and the way that he was speaking, singing, describing, uh, exploring these characters and and this language. Matt, I
2: know that the outfit has gone
3: to great lengths
2: for safety protocols. Can you tell us what will be in place for patrons attending the theatre?
3: Absolutely. The safety of our patrons, our artists, our staff, everyone who comes into the building is of paramount importance to us. Uh, One of the first ways we're keeping people safe is that this summer, we completely overhauled our HVAC systems. So it's now we've increased filtrations. We've got air cleaning systems. It's all state of the art. We also are are requiring vaccinations or uh, a negative test within 48 hours of seeing the performance. Um, We're asking everybody to wear masks and we're doing socially distanced seating. Oh, you are? We are. We are. So it's this... Just we figure with everything like up in the air with the Delta variant, we don't wanna take any chances. And we feel that we gotta balance the need for people to come together and experience some some amazing culture in community with one another with these very, very, very serious uh, protocols to keep people safe. We think it's gonna work really well. We think it's a, as, as safe as we can make it. Obviously it's impossible to eliminate all risk, but we are taking every step we can to make sure that everybody who sets foot in our building is being as well taken care of as possible.
2: Matt Torney is the Artistic Director of Theatrical Outfit and Director of An Iliad with actor Leo Sario. An Iliad will be on stage September 15th through October 10th in the Balser Theatre at Herons. More information is on our website, wabe.org citylights. In a moment, we'll continue exploring the impact of war with Emory University film professor Tanine Allison. You're tuned to WABE
1: at
2: This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis. Thank you for listening. As soon as cameras could take moving pictures of combat, war became a popular subject for narrative films. Emory University film professor Tanine Allison is a scholar of war related cinema. She recently joined me via Zoom to discuss films portraying the impact of war on those returning home from combat. We began with the 2018 film, Thou Shall Not Grow Old.
1: So this is the film about World War I that was directed by Peter Jackson. He's known for very different films, the Lord of the Rings series and The Hobbit films. But in this film, They Shall Not Grow Old, he made a documentary about World War I, which is something he, by the way, is very fascinated with. He has one of the largest collections of World War I aircraft in the world. So he was invited by the UK's Imperial War Museum to make this film about World War I. And it was made in 2018 for the centennial of the armistice. And what he did was take documentary footage of the war from the Imperial War Museum, and he paired it with audio interviews with veterans. These veterans were recorded in the 1960s, so it's authentic footage and authentic interviews. So it's really powerful just with that. But then what made it stunning, but also controversial, is that he took that footage, he colorized it, he converted it to 3D, he added synchronized sound, and smoothed it all out with digital effects. So it's just this really spectacular transformation of this footage. It looks quite modern. You look at these faces staring out at you as just being people, just like you. And you see their humanity in a new light with this processing.
2: I wondered about that because at the beginning of the film, I just felt like I was listening in on diary reminiscences. The veterans whose voices are used all indeed sound very contemporary. And I thought to myself, well, goodness, how could they be so lucid if they're all approaching 100? But it was brilliant in the way Peter Jackson used the veterans' own words essentially to craft a script for what feels like a dramatized depiction of the Great War because of what you've described about the filmmaking. There were those who criticized that?
1: There were some. The veterans who, as you point out, are really the stars of this film Many people were critical of the visual style of it, but nobody really criticized the use of the veterans' voices on the audio track. There were some who wanted those voices to be identified. So they, they just come at you know a great pace of just one voice after the next, after the next, to create an overwhelming sense of consensus. And so some people thought, well, You know maybe we could identify these voices maybe they differed more than they you know thought the same thing but um it was really the visual style that made it controversial some people thought that it went too far in making it look modern and did not adequately respect the quality of the uh, archival footage as it stood
2: i thought it was extremely powerful and Some of what was most outstanding was the soldiers' comments about how much they felt in common with German POWs.
1: They didn't see the enemy as demonized or as as other. They felt like they were there to do a job and that the other ones, you know, the other side was there to do a job as well. And that they were just all stuck in this tragic situation that felt pointless and meaningless and and futile.
2: In the beginning of the film, Peter Jackson captures that ridiculously naive spirit that pervaded about this will be over in a few months at most. And he even has some of them describing the Early arrival on the battlefield as sort of like Christmas. And that all changes very dramatically when we get into the trenches. The fear that is conveyed in the trenches is simply stunning. You have a clip, and I was hoping you could set the scene for us.
1: Sure. This clip comes at the end of the war. And what you'll hear in this clip is the voices of those interviewed veterans discussing how they felt once the armistice was announced. There was a feeling of relief, and gladness, I suppose, but no celebration.
2: Uh, The staff officer shut his watch up and said, I wonder what we're all going to do next.
1: There was no demonstration of any kind. Nobody said a word. Everybody just slumped away. The only way we could have celebrated with regards to a liquid would have been tea, that's all. It was one of the flattest
2: moments of our lives. We just couldn't comprehend it. We had that sort of feeling that we'd been kicked out of a job. To some of us it was practically the only life we'd known. What was one going
0: to do next?
2: It was just like being made redundant. That was very much the feeling of everyone.
0: We were thoroughly upset. We've all got no work to go to.
2: I don't want to go back. There was no cheering, no singing. We were drained of all emotion. We were too far gone, too exhausted to enjoy. All things come to an end, and even a drama can go on too long. It didn't end with a whimper, but something very much like one. This eerie silence. One soldier described it as like a roll of thunder that just ends. And then he says, there was a feeling of relief, but no celebration. One of the flattest moments of my life.
1: Yeah, it's quite sad. They fought, they suffered through this, and then didn't even get to celebrate the end. They felt drained. They felt like it was an anticlimax. There was no cheering. There was no celebration. It was just quiet. I thought that is such a telling story about the war that it didn't feel like we won. It just felt like a pointless exercise that didn't lead to any kind of outcome. And that the veterans themselves, the soldiers who now were facing this new future as veterans, that they didn't know what the future would hold for them, that this is all they knew and all they had been doing for the last years, and that they'd be returning home and didn't know what that would be like and didn't know how they'd be able to adjust to this new world that was unlike this strange world they'd been living in, in the trenches.
2: Two films deal with returning World War Two veterans, the best years of our lives and the much more recent film by Dee Rees, *Mudbound*. How does The Best Years of Our Lives capture the agony of returning veterans?
1: The Best Years of Our Lives is from 1946. It's directed by William Wyler. And it tells the story of three servicemen returning from the war to their hometown. They meet on a plane riding home and they face challenges readjusting to society so we have one character al played by frederick march he works at a bank and as he returns to his job he's pressured to deny loans to fellow veterans he's also shown to have a drinking problem then we have fred played by dana andrews he comes back and can't find his wife it appears that she's moved on without him She seems to like his uniform more than she likes him anymore. She doesn't like that he's unable to find a well-paying job. And then perhaps most importantly and most memorably, we have the character of Homer. Homer was played by Harold Russell. He was a real veteran of the war, a non-professional actor who lost both of his hands in an explosion and learned to use mechanical lit hook prosthetics and in the film he plays a very similar character another veteran who's lost his hands but you see him in just remarkable scenes where he is adeptly signing his name lighting matches lighting cigarettes using the hooks just as well as he could hands so though there is tragedy in the in the film and how they are treated when they return their difficulties in readjusting to society This character in particular shows hope and how well he adjusts to this new life and he provides a model for the other characters and how well they're able to get on with their lives and adjust to the new realities.
2: We have another clip from the best years of our lives with the main character, Fred, played by the actor Dana Andrews. What's happening in this part?
1: In this part of the movie, you have one of the only acknowledgments of PTSD directly. Of course, this is not a term they would have used in the 1940s. They would have called it something like a nervous condition. But he is having in this clip a nightmare and he is calling out and clearly remembering and reliving aspects of the war that were traumatic to him. And then towards the end of the clip, you'll hear his love interest come into the room and try to comfort him and get him back to sleep.
3: There you guys, jump. Get out of there, bail out. Gnorski, get out of that plane.
0: Teach yourself one Three. Come on, the rest of you guys. Fred. Come on, get out. Fred, wake up. Gnorski. Wake up. Gnorski. She's burning up. Go out, come out, Fred! Wake up, wake up! Just worry up. Just go ahead, look out. It's all right, Fred. Go back to sleep. Go back to sleep. Go back to sleep, Fred. There's nothing to be afraid of. All you have to do is go to sleep. do <laughs> Grace.
2: Another aspect of the best years of our lives that's striking is the difference in class background of the returning soldiers. And this is something once again we'll see even more vividly in mudbound. But what does William Weiler say about how the social class, of the soldiers plays out in their return to civilian life.
1: Well, starting out as these three characters meet on a transport plane, taking them back home, they come from different backgrounds, but we don't know that yet. We just know that they have this bond, this bond of brotherhood from having served. They didn't know each other while they were serving overseas but only met on this flight, but in, you know, immediately connected with one another. When they return, they take a taxi home and you see them stop at the different homes and notice for the first time that there is a class difference. So Homer gets out first, he's in a middle-class home returning to his parents. Then Al gets out second, he's the banker. And so Fred, who's left in the taxi, is kind of amazed that he lives in this fancy high-rise apartment. And then when Fred returns home, we see him seeing his parents in a very low-class home, something more like a shack that's by right by the train tracks. So those class divisions that seem to have been erased in the melting pot of the army, of the military bringing all people from all different walks of life together and making them equal. So those things that seemed like equality in the military were reminded to them once they returned. They had to deal with these class differences again and struggled with it. So Al, working at the bank, has now seen the humanity of the people who would come and ask for a loan by having worked alongside soldiers of all different walks of life, and so has a a difficulty seeing and looking at at applications like a banker again. And then Fred came from a lower class background but was making good money as a bombardier and a captain in the army. And so doesn't want to go back to his old job as a soda jerk at a pharmacy. So issues of class come back when they have to return to work, they have to find a job, and they have to go back to some of the assumptions that people have about the way that American capitalism is supposed to work. And now that they've seen this more egalitarian system in the military, they struggle in in returning back to that.
2: Emory University film professor, Tineen Allison. We'll return to more of our conversation about films exploring the impact of war in just a moment. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today we're exploring the impact of war on stage and on screen. Let's get back to my conversation with Emory University scholar of war-related cinema, Taneen Allison. Class and race are center stage in... Dee Reese's film Mudbound. Tanine, I think this is one of the most powerful films I have seen in recent years. How would you describe Mudbound?
1: I absolutely agree with you, Lois. This is just such a powerful film on so many different levels.
3: My nightmare is always the same. <clears throat> I scream, but there's nothing coming out.
1: This place, this law, we don't belong to them.
0: And I think of the
2: farm, I think of mud, encrusted knees and hair.
1: Our family's in trouble. You understand that, do you? What's the worst thing you ever did?
0: You betray your own blood.
2: You can't even see your own wife is miserable. Silence.
0: Oppression. Fear. It would take an extraordinary man to beat all that.
1: So Mudbound is a 2017 film by the director Dee Rees. It is set in rural Mississippi after World War II. And it tells the story of an unlikely friendship between a white veteran and a black veteran. And it shows the dangers of that friendship to both of them. But of course there is, as you said, a class difference and a race difference. So the white veteran Jamie is the brother of a man who owns a farm. And the black veteran Ronzel is the son of a sharecropper family that lives and works on that farm. So their lives are intertwined, but there is of course a huge difference in the power dynamic and class dynamic between these two families. But as we saw in the best years of our lives, they were able to put aside these differences when they were in the military. So Jamie tells a story of how he was up in his bomber and was saved from German fighter pilots by the Red Tails. So this was a group of black pilots of fighter airplanes. And he then learned something. He learned a kind of respect that he didn't learn growing up in Mississippi for these African-American soldiers who were risking their lives for their country. And so that sets the stage for this friendship. But that friendship goes against all of the strictures and the guidelines of how to behave in Jim Crow America, and it becomes very dangerous for both of them.
2: The direction is superb on this. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about Dee Reese.
1: Dee Reese is a filmmaker who was the first Black woman to be nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay for Mudbound. Her first feature film was Pariah, which I have recently taught in my class. It's a coming-of-age story about a Black lesbian facing her own struggles in her community and learning to, to move on. Then Dee Reese directed Bessie and then Mudbound. And I think as a director on the rise, Mudbound did not get a ton of attention. It was a uh, Netflix release. But as you said, I think it's one of the most moving films that I have seen in a long time and does a good job with the historical depiction of race relations. It does not glorify it. It does not excuse it. It does tell the story of friendship, but doesn't censor the the horrors of that time period and the, and the true dangers, especially for the Black family. Indeed.
2: Black veterans in Spike Lee's movie, The Five Bloods, already knew what it felt like to be unappreciated during the war. How would you assess this movie?
1: Well, this movie is a follow-up to Spike Lee's The Miracle at St. Anna, which was also looking at World War II soldiers, black World War II soldiers. And he's now telling the story of four older Vietnam veterans who are black. And in the film, they return to Vietnam, ostensibly to retrieve the buried remains of their fallen squad leader who was played in flashbacks by Chadwick Boseman in his last film role before his death. But really they're going back to find buried gold that they previously stole from the CIA during the war. So this is a a wide ranging film as Spike Lee's films masterfully are. It's a range of different genres. You have elements of the heist movie, the combat movie. There are documentary sequences. It's an action film, it's a drama. But at the core of it, it's about this friendship and this bond that the four black veterans have felt since they forged that friendship in combat. And they've been connected since that time. They're reconnecting now. It's like a reunion. But they're going back to Vietnam and facing some of the consequences of their actions there and facing the ways that their lives have unfolded in different ways.
2: Spike Lee has a superb cast in The Five Bloods. I mean, it it goes from one actor to the next in who is affecting you the most in scene to scene. Did you feel that this movie could have been shorter?
1: I think so. I mean, I think that Spike Lee because he can, because he's one of the best respected directors of his generation, he can do whatever he wants and, and pack it all in. And I feel like he, he does. Like if he has an idea, um, even if it is audacious, he puts it in there. But I think it allowed for a lot of complexity. So you have, who I think is the star of the film, Delroy Lindo, who plays Paul. And he is looking to find this gold to improve his own life. And he feels entitled to that because of his service to his country. But then you have Jonathan Majors, who I'm very much enjoying Lovecraft Country on HBO. He plays his son, his estranged son, and he can't understand his dad and his dad's sympathies. And then the other veterans that we have here played by Clark Peters, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. and Norm Lewis. They all have their own political commitments, including to the Black Lives Matter movement. So it really allows you to show the complexity of this generation and the way that it intersects with the movements going on today.
2: Yeah. And if we began with the condition known as shell shock in World War One, we now have come to and PTSD is the acronym used to describe the soldier's trauma and being haunted. What can you tell us about the clip we'll hear?
1: So this is a short clip in this scene. Paul, that's Delroy Lindo, talks about seeing ghosts. And so he is, like in previous films we discussed, seeing and having nightmares about his past and imagining that it is still haunting him and then you'll hear the group putting their fists together and declaring themselves the bloods so again showing the bond that they had during wartime that they still have even today
0: i see ghosts y'all i see ghosts what happens Uh, to all of us man have you seen them too yeah Dad, come to you at night. Uh, Storm and mom comes to me damn near every night. Now he talked to you like you talked to me. Come on. I don't oh, think so. Come on.
2: Why did you include American Sniper as one of the films to watch?
1: I think American Sniper speaks to our current moment. It's telling a story of a man, and since we're talking about race here, we can note a white man who felt an extreme commitment to combat, but then was traumatized by his experience and had difficulty returning home and readjusting, as we saw in some of the other films. It was controversial. Um, It did tend to present the war in Iraq as a black and white conflict between good guys and bad guys. Some of that comes from the memoir on which American Sniper is based. That was written by Chris Kyle. Chris Kyle was known as the most lethal sniper in US history. So some viewers, some listeners may not want to go there just because of that and because of the controversial parts of his memoir. But I do think that it speaks to the way that even a hero, a John Wayne type character like Chris Kyle is now going to therapy for his PTSD. We see that in the film. And that that speaks to a kind of patriotism that is in our society now that's built around this warrior culture. This warrior culture is also built around a certain kind of white victim hero that I think is exemplified in this film. Tanin, what
2: drew you to make combat on film your specialty area?
1: I feel like war movies are often dismissed as simplistic, as propagandistic, but there's so much complexity and ambiguity in them. And I think in all of the movies we've talked about today, There is that ambiguity that you can interpret it in many different ways and have an insight into an experience that might not be your own. Now that we no longer have the draft in this country, not many of us actually serve. And we do need to understand the situation that our veterans have found themselves in so that we can make better decisions going forward about how we wage war, and whether we wage war.
2: Emory University Film Professor Tanine Allison. More information about the movies we discussed is available on our website, wabe.org slash City You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an Encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., comedian Paula Poundstone stops by. She'll be performing in Atlanta at the Buckhead Theater this Friday. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylife. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights Senior Producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Wrights. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.